ask you to delay the implementation of the new funding formula as the plan has become even more unworkable. The governor's request that agencies begin to review their budgets for areas to cut. We are afraid that the economic impacts of this crisis will be devastating and long lasting. I'm going to force me. She muted everybody. This is Nevada State's Commission on School Funding. These are all community members. Some of them are educators, but they're community members and they're determining the school funding model for all children. Now we'll be including how the federal dollars are being allocated to all students. So this is interesting because Nevada wasn't doing it exactly correctly. And they're being forced to address the equity issues. It's going to be an interesting well, Um I think you're back, Jessica. Okay, I am back and you all are unmuted in case you were enjoying the benefit of my important mute. Do I need to start at the beginning of this item again? Yes. Thank you all for your patience. Jessica, you need to start with the 177 emails. That's when we lost you. Oh, well, wonderful. I brought my water bottle, so we're fine. Thank you, Member Jensen, and thank you all again for your patience. Um, the 177 emails were received with the following text. Dear Senator and Commissioner, I write to ask you to delay the implementation of the new funding formula as the plan has become even more unworkable. With the governor's request that agencies begin to review their budgets for areas to cut, we are afraid that the economic impacts of this crisis will be devastating and long lasting. Your job is to use the current year's budget to make recommendations. However, with new economic realities, we believe it would be irresponsible to make recommendations based on those numbers. The only responsible action the commission can take is to document these current economic conditions and recommend to indefinitely delay the July 1st, 2021 implementation. Thank you. 
The next public comment is from Sylvia Lauzos on behalf of the Nevada Immigrant Coalition. Dear commission members, first and foremost, wishing that you and your families are safe and healthy. The COVID-19 crisis has exposed existing inequalities in Nevada's education system. CCSD has acknowledged that many students will not be able to access remote learning during school closures. Rural school districts are struggling with broadband access. Estimates from Gwynn Center are that 26,000 students may be being left behind due to lack of access to broadband. Additionally, 17% of households, mostly concentrated in Clark County's inner city, do not have access to a laptop or desktop computer. Recent analysis from the Review Journal reports that 67,000 students in CCSD had no access to remote learning during the first week of school closures. Community groups such as the ones that Nevada Immigrant Coalition represents have been clamoring for detailed demographic and neighborhood data as to which students are suffering the most. Unfortunately, it may be the case that our large local education agencies lack the capacity to monitor who is learning and who is falling further behind. We hope that to be mistaken. Feedback from our communities, however, is that students who are being left behind are children from low-income neighborhoods, ELL students, and children at IEPs. Would SB 543 funding formula have provided the infrastructure to withstand emergency school closures and support remote learning where every Nevada student has ongoing opportunity to learn as required by law? This is a sobering perspective that the commission should engage. What we have observed on the ground, our answer is no. The people-centered funding plan guiding SB 543 does not address the structural, rural, and inner-city neighborhood inequality inequities that has become visible during this pandemic. The people-centered plan, as currently conceived, does not properly take into account the vast gaps in poverty. Parents from our communities report that they have to suddenly move in spite of the governor's eviction moratorium, can't get a family member tested, have to file for unemployment, and to go to the food bank, and are afraid to go to a clinic or hospital. The parents under the most economic pressure do not have the capacity to figure out how to access laptops, navigate websites, or monitor remote learning. Teachers in these impacted neighborhoods report that they can only reach 5 to 10% of their students. Senators Woodhouse and Dennis, who are the sponsors of SB 543, admonish the committee that it is their duty to determine an optimal level of funding for public schools. What, is, what the pandemic has made clear is that to calculate optimal school finance numbers, the commission would need to analyze existing inequalities slash inequities, neighborhood by neighborhood, and rural versus urban. In technical terms, this is the at-risk weight under the SB 543 proposal. The at-risk weight proposed by Aguero spreadsheets is based on available current funding under categorical programs, not what these students actually need. Moreover, the commission should have the opportunity to incorporate the lessons of the pandemic. Nevada Immigrant Coalition has advocated grandfathering Zoom and Victory schools. Zoom and Victory are relatively small categorical programs addressing neighborhood inequity, and for this reason, it is true that there are many students who don't benefit from these efforts given Nevada needs. We don't agree that because these programs are not sufficiently well-funded that they should be eliminated. Rather, we believe that because these programs work for the most impacted kids, as documented by NDE research, they should be grandfathered. During this pandemic, we've witnessed that because many Zoom and Victory schools invested in one-to-one -one Chromebooks, they avoided the digital divide scarcity problem. Digital divide scarcity problem. Zoom and Victory are equity focused and channel more dollars to the most impacted schools, children, and neighborhoods. We believe that the commission should keep this equity equipment in place for those schools that have been successful. Senators Woodhouse and Dennis state in their February letter that because SB 543 directs schools to invest in Zoom and Victory services, it follows that SB 543 would preserve Zoom and Victory performance. We attach our own spreadsheets based on Aguero spreadsheet weights that he submitted during the 2019 legislative session that show that current Zoom and Victory schools would receive substantially less monies under the SB 543 plan. First, we have spoken to principals of success, successful Zoom and Victory schools, and no principal believes they can continue success with the SB 543 Zoom services and Victory services allocations. Second, Zoom and Victory were not about per people weight and equality approach, but about introducing systems that would be successful for students in poverty and ELL. 
remember that CCSD, school district with over 60,000 ELLs, had failed to institute research-based L instruction for across-the-board student success. There were individual bright spots. Due to the system that shows that investments can move the achievement needle in a very high-risk population, at-risk Ls, by changing culture and implementing with fidelity research-based instruction and curriculum. These are blueprints to expand upon and to follow. For example, Ls under Castaneda versus Pickard. Switching to per-pupil services allocations miscast with Zoom and Victory has attained, we respectfully submit that optimal weights for Ls and at-risk students should track Zoom and Victory current weights. The Excel PDF spreadsheets are attached. The final public comment that's been submitted at this time is from the Nevada Association of School Superintendents. The Nevada Association of School Superintendents wishes to make abundantly clear their position on public education funding for the advancement of academic, social, and emotional learning of all children in the state of Nevada. NAS genuinely appreciates the effort of the efforts of the 2019 Nevada legislature in recognizing the archaic education funding model under which we currently operate. We are grateful for the passage of SB 543 that creates a pupil-centered funding plan and a commission on school funding, which will subsequently make recommendations on how best to implement the plan. However, NAS must vehemently express significant concern regarding the implementation of any plan that fails to address optimal levels of educational funding, but merely creates the illusion of improvement by simply redistributing inadequate resources. This redistribution will cause significant harm to Nevada's children as it fails to address the real issue, optimal funding levels for education. If no new revenue streams are created, Nevada will perpetually remain at or near the bottom of all public education lists from across the country when compared to other states. As a result, NAS desires to publicly declare the following recommendations to all law and decision makers in the state of Nevada. One, fund the base at optimal levels for all students as outlined in the 2006 and 2018 APA Nevada School Finance Studies while providing additional financial support for Nevada's most at-risk children. Two, increase state spending on public education by creating new revenue streams to support the people-centered funding plan. Three, provide more stable funding for public education by enacting protections to the new people-centered funding plan, which account for inflation and alleviate the erosion of resources. NAS unequivocally desires to achieve their mission of providing the highest quality education to all children in the great state of Nevada. If we are to fulfill this mission, there must be an optimal and reliable revenue stream on which we can rely. We stand ready to partner with all decision makers in solving this most difficult issue as the future of our most precious resource, even our children are relying on our actions right now. That concludes the public comment that we have received for public comment number one at this time, Madam Chair. Okay, thank you very much, Jessica. And now you can get back to the drink of water. Um, uh, moving on to the, uh, the rest of the agenda, we have actually a couple of items. We've got the uh, meeting minutes, We've also will be moving into a presentation um, regarding cost adjustment factors. We'll be moving from there to a um, maximum amount of money for the administrative expenses and um, uh, cost adjustment factors necessarily small schools and the small districts under the cost adjustments. Um, just as a quick reminder, and uh, Jessica, I don't know if we got that slide together ready to share if that you have that available or somebody else does but I'll speak to it regardless um, one of the things I wanted to remind everybody is we are at that point where there are some expectations for districts to uh, complete uh, budget uh, uh, budget forms 
and uh, complete their budgets so that a comparison can be conducted between the pupil-centered funding plan and the Nevada plan for those budgets and that is fast approaching. Therefore, the only way that districts can do that is if this group provides some guidance and direction to uh, Nevada Department of Education regarding some critical elements on that formula. Um, during the May meeting, our focus will be uh, targeting our direction toward the state education uh, funds and a comparison of the pupil-centered funding plan and the Nevada plan for the state. Our June will actually be focusing on a review of the comparisons that are provided by the districts as well as beginning to put together a set of recommendations to the governor and then ultimately to the legislature. Uh, we really wanna be able to focus our attention on that in June and July, and those uh, uh, recommendations to the governor have to be submitted on or before July 15th. Uh, I wanted to raise that just as a reminder to us that uh, there's some critical work that needs to be done, otherwise the guidance can't be given to the districts. Um, and I assume since we have several folks that are working either in districts, for districts, um, that you understand you have to be given some guidance to be able to meet the uh, deadlines of SB 543. Um, with that, I just want to make sure that we are all kind of focused on the important work ahead for today. And with that, we can move forward with, um, I believe our first component is approval for the commission meeting minutes. Um, if we have a couple of sets, we have the uh, February 20th, um, that was a Thursday, the meeting minutes for that, that was primarily public comment. And then February 21st, that was a morning and an afternoon meeting. So those are in two sets for the commission. Um, do we have a motion to approve those minutes? Madam Chair, Dave Jensen for the record. I'd move to approve the minutes of February 20th and February 21st, 2020 as presented. Thank you. Do we have a second? This is Paul and I'll second. Thank you. Any discussion? Okay. Given that, uh, all those in favor and approval of the minutes for uh, February 20th and 21st for the Commission on School Funding, please say aye. Aye. Opposed? Nay? Okay, Jessica, all, uh, all have approved. Um, and then moving on to the approval of the work group minutes, meeting minutes for the 21st, both the reporting and monitoring work group and the formula and distribution work group. Um, Dave and or Jim, did you want to make any comments before moving forward and uh, asking for a motion? I have no additional comments. Okay. No Dave. additional comments either. All right, then in that case, looking for a motion. This is Jason, I'll motion on the reporting group only, as that was the only group I was involved with. Okay. Second for reporting group. Second. Thank you. 
All those in favor of moving forward with the reporting and monitoring group, please indicate aye. 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 Any opposed? Hearing none, we move forward to the formula and distribution group. Do I have a motion to approve the minutes for the formula and distribution group? Madam Chair, this is why I would I would move for approval of the minutes. I think I'd be okay. You did you beat me, guy, and I'll second. Okay, thank you very much. All of those in favor in moving forward with the approval of the formula and distribution work group minutes for February 21st. Aye. Aye. Opposed. Okay, with that, let's move forward to uh, recommendations regarding this is a presentation and possible action for uh, cost adjustments included in the pupil-centered funding plan. I believe that's Justin and Amanda. It is, and uh, Chair, I'm gonna start with the regional cost adjustment, and then Amanda's gonna take the next two. But okay. I'm gonna attempt to share my screen and share the PowerPoints. Um, okay. Let's see. So you guys should be seeing a regional cost adjustment screen. Is that good? Yeah. Okay. I am going to, if, if you guys can see it, leave it in this format and not in the slideshow. When I do that, it does very weird things on my screen. So as long as you guys can read the slides okay, then I'm going to uh, not go into the slideshow uh, port, uh, version of PowerPoint. Um, for the funding working work group, this is going to be familiar. Um, for the rest of, you know, for everyone else, what we really want to try to do today is uh, tell the story of the, the work that's been done around regional cost adjustments um, over the past couple months, why APA landed on a specific recommendation, and then what we think really are the options for the commission um, around the, our recommendation and the other alternatives that are out there. So we'll start with just reviewing the different types of adjustments that states use the pros and cons of those adjustments. Um, we'll walk through the different iterations that uh, APA has created and, and really a ton of work by Amanda to, to get through all of those. Um, and then we're gonna end again with what our final recommendation is and what some of the different alternatives might be. And so the first thing to consider are just the different types of um, adjustments that different states use. There really are three different types of adjustments. One is a very traditional cost of living index. We all can think about the market basket of goods and uh, of goods. And basically what happens is uh, states go and they, they price out the same basket of goods in different communities. And then they compare the, the costs of that basket of goods and that's how you set the regional cost adjustment. What is true is that uh, you know, it still depends on data and not, not every community is gonna have uh, necessarily an adjustment in different states, but in general, it's relatively replicable, pretty easy to update, um, and, it, and it's using that same basket of goods. Frequently in a cost of living, you're gonna have housing in there. It's often at rental prices, not price of housing, but the cost of rents. You've got the hedonic wage index. That is more of a um, statistical approach that uses regression analysis, analysis to predict the wages needed. The hedonic approach in part is trying to consider everything in a community, so the positives and the negatives, to really predict 
uh, what wages need to be. Um, so that hedonic piece would try to take into account what sort of amenities are in a community. It also take into account what some of the price um, drivers are. So if you have high prices, but high amenities, in theory, a hedonic model um, is gonna take both of those into account and they would kind of offset themselves a bit. And then in the comparable wage index, which is really, again, um, where currently school finance economists are going, what you're doing is trying to take non-educator salaries with similar educational backgrounds as a predictor of what it takes in a community to attract certain levels of educated personnel. And so you're trying to take, again, a look at um, something like, let's say we always use it, accountants, and how much does it take to attract an accountant in a community? to say, well, that's a very similarly educated professional, that's how much um, it would also take for teachers. Why the economists like it is it takes out any data that districts have an impact on. So it takes out the actual cost of teachers because that is a, that's derived through actually what districts decide to pay, not necessarily through kind of that ec econometric model of what they have to pay. We talked about it before. Uh, there are only 12 states who use any sort of adjustment. Um, two use a cost of living adjustment. Five currently use a hedonic index, and six use CWI. So, just quickly, some pros and cons. Cost of living, biggest pro, it's readily readily available data, and it represents the cost that um, personnel face to live in a community. The cons, it tends to be limited to population centers of a certain size. So if you're trying to rely especially on any sort of federal data, you still are generally only getting data for um, larger population areas. Otherwise, you have to use a regional adjustment. It assumes that spending patterns are similar across um, communities and across the board. So it's that same basket of goods everywhere. And it does not uh, factor in at all the attractiveness of the community. And so that's really one of the big drawbacks the economists that we work with talk about is that you can have high costs, often in high cost communities, you also have a very attractive place to be. It's not taking into account at all the attractiveness of the community. So the ability to attract folks regardless of the price. So you can imagine when you talk to economists, that's a very important piece of this. Hedonic, um, the pros, it can really, it can incorporate a lot of different um, information that affects salaries. It can include working condition. They can include all those amenities. Um, so it, it, you can put a lot of different pieces into the formula. Really the biggest concern with Adonic is that it is not easily updatable. We actually heard even in the public comment, anytime you run a regression, the idea of transparency starts to get a little muddy. Um, it can be harder to explain when you're doing something through a statistical model and then the uh, volume of data. So even if you can get the data, it just takes a lot of data to update the system. The comparable wage index, the pros really are around the availability of data. Generally, the economists who are creating these are using data from the, um, ACA, uh, the American Community Survey and um, that the American Community Survey is updated frequently by the feds, so it's free data, it's something states don't have to do. You can then update every year. Um, it really is trying to understand the attractiveness of the community, so uh, that should have an influence on the salaries in the community. And it's again independent from any decisions that the district can make. The con is it's, um, it's a relative measure, 
um, somewhat like these others too, but it's a relative measure. So you're not really talking about the price within a community to live there. It's just the relative difference in what it takes to attract and uh, to attract personnel through those communities. So you're, you're creating a relative um, metric versus an absolute metric. So we're gonna walk through kind of the, the development of, of uh, the RCA for this commission and what we've done. The original work was a 2018 study. At that time, we were relying on the 2013 national data, so older data. We were looking only at what was produced by um, Lori Taylor, and that only looks at BAs or higher, so it was not looking at other personnel in the community. And <clears throat> the result was only one district who would have a CWI over 1.0. So um, to, to update that, we uh, looked at using the most recent data, and so we were able to update that data. Um, we developed CWIs using a broader definition of personnel. So one of the, a lot of the feedback we received from the working group is that um, and really the commission as a whole, that is industry makeup doesn't lend itself to only comparing teachers to those with a bachelor's or higher. There are plenty of communities who are competing for that same personnel, and those personnel don't necessarily have to have a BA. So especially in those mining communities, you just have a different pool of competition. And so we broaden that. So we're looking at uh, both professional and the classified salaries. Um, and then we are recommending a CWI for all workers um, and all education levels so we really broaden the look of um, that kind of competitive group of personnel and when we did that you know you got some changes There's a lot of numbers on the page they're probably relatively small looking from that side but the far left column of numbers shows just what we talked about Clark as the only district who had an adjustment above 1.0 so the recommendation was if you were to apply that, you would apply it at 1.0 or higher. Um, if you look at the 2019 data, so if you, when you update that data to 2019 and you really look at that same group of professionals, which is the BA or higher, Clark's adjustment goes up. There's only itself and Washoe who would be above 1.0. Um, when you look at the 2019 data and you look at uh, those with less than a BA, you start to see the differences across the state. You have different communities for the most part who then have a higher relative cost of personnel when it looks at those with less than a BA. And then um, if you look at that, you can weight it, you can weight that. And what we did there is trying to weight by within schools the percentage of um, professionals versus the percentage of classified staff. That moves it around a little bit. You actually get a lot of districts with a 1.01. But in the end, we were really recommending that all workers CWI, if you, if you stayed with CWI, which gets many more districts above the 1.0 um, and redistributes, uh, you know, not redistributes, but you know, has some differential from the original in that you have more of the rural uh, districts with a cost of a comp comparable wage index above that 1.0. So that was like, that was really the first ask was, can we make a CWI that is more Nevada specific? We brought that back. We would say there was still some pushback of, can we get an overall um, adjustment that's more Nevada specific? And you know, kind of what are the other alternatives? And so something that was brought up, and we heard about it earlier even today, was 
could you look at just a cost of living adjustment? And could you, um, what was brought forward was the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the regional price parity, the RPPs. Um, we took a look at that. We actually, we integrated it into our final recommendation in a specific way. Overall, if you do decide to use the cost of living um, adjustment using RPP, we would recommend using the all items, um, but that is not our recommendation of where you should go. Then you could still go with a hedonic wage index. There was no way for us to create a Nevada-specific hedonic wage index in the timeline and scope. It just takes a lot of data collection, which we didn't have the ability to do in this timeline. But if you do take a look at the RPP, this is the next uh, chart to the point. The all items, if you were just using the RPP, is what we would recommend. There, you really have the same outcome in a relative sense that we had with the original CWI, which is only one district is above 1.0, and it's only slightly above 1.0, and that's Washoe. Um, Clark is right at what would be kind of 1.0, the average, and every other district's below. The information that was you know, interesting coming out of this clearly is that on the good side, um, and we did get a lot of feedback that in certain communities, it can take a cost a lot more to actually buy certain goods. You do start to see in the more rural communities a higher cost of goods. You see a lower cost of rent um, and a lower cost of other services. And so uh, when you look at rent, you know, Washoe does stand out as having a much higher cost when you just look at rents. So the next step, we took that RPP information, we took the CWI information, we went back, we talked to the economists we were working with out of uh, Montana, Montana State and said, you know, kind of what are some things we could do here to again get a, a, a specific uh, Nevada adjustment? And we created what we think will, you know, will be our, what, what is our recommendation, which is the Nevada Cost of Education Index. Taking into account that when we look at the um, expenditures in the state for education, 72% are for personnel, 28% are non-personnel. Could you create something that still uses CWI with all workers for the um, personnel portion of this, and then the goods component of the RPP for the for the um, for the other 28%, and that then creates um, a metric. You know, I think some of the feedback was that it's a uh, you know the question becomes well you know transparency. It is a very clear mathematical formula it is one more step um, but it's a very clear formula You're, you are just taking two numbers and weighting those two numbers as you combine them the other alternative you could look at is taking a best of so basically holding everyone harmless to their best possible adjustment so either cwi for all workers at all education levels or the col based on the rpp for all items And when you do that, you know, this next um, chart kind of shows the, the two approaches here. Um, the better of on the left, so that would be basically saying you either take CW, CWI or cost of living. You don't do any combination. You just give the best of. Most districts then um, come above one. You still have a couple who are below. And uh, the two highest, um, but you have Clark and uh, Washoe, but you then actually have a number of other districts between those two or above one. The NCEI, on the other hand, is on the right side. Um, 
when you put those pieces together, uh, you see it kind of most of the districts with the better of also have, who are above 1.0, also have above 1.0 with the NCEI. Um, I think the only exception there is Washington. So there was just the ask about incorporating housing. Um, so, you know, kind of what's the theory of action of not incorporating housing? I think I've said a couple times. Um, so the consultant that we are working with, the economist, um, you know, you can't really put housing into the CWI. The CWI in part is trying to take that into account. The theory of action is when folks are being hired onto a location, um, they're taking into account the cost of living of that community as they decide to go to the community or not to accept the wages. That's just the theory of action. Um, so that really, in belief is the CWI incorporates some of that hedonic pricing into the methodology by looking at the actual actions of professionals. Um, so it's just a different compared, uh, conceptual framework. The concern about housing um, is that it can be overly influenced when you do a COL and you put those housing costs in. And so I think the way to think about that, I can use two examples. And I think the best way to talk about it is it's really a theory of action question. Are you trying to compensate personnel or costs, or are you trying to adjust your formula for what uh, communities need to pay to attract people? Those are two different things. The CWI is trying to take into account what the cost of the resource is for the district, not what the cost of housing is for the teacher. Those are two different things. And so the kind of ludicrous extreme example I always use the CWI is that if you run the CWI for Hawaii, they have a very low cost. They have a very low CWI compared to the country. They have some of the highest housing costs in the country but they're a very attractive place to work. And so not even looking at teachers, but looking at other similar professionals, they, they can attract their staff because people want to live there. They will make a concession to live there. And so again, the CWI really, that lens is about what is the cost to purchase the resource for the district, not, not what is the cost of housing for the teacher. And I think that's where we're kind of getting a little bit um, it's not confused, it's just that you have to decide what your theory of action is. And for us, the school finance formula is supposed to address the cost for a district. We're doing all those adjustments for the district level. Um, but that's just, you know, it's a very, it's an easy way as an economist to talk about things, but that is the way we talk about things in the kind of econometric approach. So our final recommendations we still uh, would recommend NCI. We think it's consistent with research. We think it's where other states are going. Again, it's about the cost, the competitiveness um, with other industries and what it takes for a district to purchase a resource. Um, so that, that is our recommendation. And then we're, we're you know, because it now also includes goods, we would recommend that it only is applied above 1.0. So, and we would, we would recommend that with anything that the commission picks. Um, that you, you know, you only apply 1.0 and above. You know, clearly as you phase all this in and think about the waterfall, any place you turn on one adjustment, um, you know, within a fixed system, it, it lowers kind of every other adjustment. So you can make a decision of when this would be applied. 
Um, so perhaps this isn't part of the, the initials. Perhaps you're waiting um, down the road until you phase this portion in. States phase in their formulas over time all the time. And so you're thinking strategically about what are the most important adjustments, and maybe this isn't the first adjustment you want to start with. Um, and then what we like about it is the updating. And so one of the comments, and I don't know if it's okay protocol to talk about public comment or not, but we're all online and locked in our houses, so I will go for it. Um, uh, you know, there was the question of transparency. And then there was also the question of, um, you know, it's not reflecting actual costs. Thinking if, you, if the commission decides to go with an adjustment, whatever the RCA is, we would recommend you pick an adjustment that can be updated regularly so that the new data is being put into play. But, you know, that's what's really great about CWI is the data is coming out every year. So if you do see a sudden spike in housing costs, and for whatever reason that creates a sudden spike in the salaries needed in the community, it would get picked up. What you don't want to do is pick um, an adjustment, and we've talked a little bit about this with the um, Finance Work Group Committee. People love Maryland's Adonic pricing model. They haven't updated it since 2002, right? So you've got a problem there. It's, it's a great formula. It just is really, really, really hard to update. Um, so you want to find whatever you do, data that you can update. We would suggest, you know, every biennium um, so that you have, you know, the most updated data. If there are changes in community, that's becoming part of it. So that comes to the, to the alternatives. If you choose not to go with the NCEI, um, you could instead, um, you know, model the impact of a couple of these approaches through the model. Okay, you know, I think you know, Jeremy's probably going to, you know, shake his fist at us, but you know that is a component of the overall model, and you can see the different impacts. Um, you could just set the RCA in the short term as 1.0 for all districts. You know, it's still an adjustment; it's it's part of a multiplier, but it would be the same multiplier for all districts. The truth is, if you would have picked the original CWI, that would have been true for all but one district. Um, and then you work to get more specific data that folks are more comfortable with. Um, and, you know, or you could adopt an alternative RCA uh, based upon the RPP uh, cost of living data. Again, um, we think, and if you look at all the data, it's clear when you look at that relative piece of it, housing, the rental prices are really driving that RPP. Um, because in the end, as you unpack it, the one kind of outlier is the 1.06 in housing, in rental for Washoe. And in the end, Washoe is the only district above. So housing is really driving your RPP. Um, the, the, the all, the, when you look at the overall RPP, housing is really driving that number. Okay. Questions? There should be a few. Thank you. Uh, questions? Guy? Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, just, just to help clarify something, uh, Jason, and I know we've talked about this before, and I think I understand the reason why it's been included in the past and why it was a part of your recommendation, but can you talk about the reasons underlying uh, the recommendation that you would only apply uh, apply factors when they're 1.0 or above. Uh, as I mean, it seems to me on, on one hand, it's the relationship between all of the factors that's meaningful. So if you take 
all of those above one and, and bring them down to one, or all of those below one and bring them up to one, you're affecting that relationship between all of the districts. And I just wonder from um, a statistical efficacy standpoint whether that's an appropriate thing to do. I understand that it's part of, um, it's part of an attempt to mute the impacts between and among the districts. I, I wholeheartedly get that. But if you're recommending something that is supposed to show the relative difference between costs among the districts, doesn't fixing that number either above or below kind of skew that a bit? The answer is clearly yes. Um, in the pure economic sense, you would apply in both I think what we have found um, in application in states or you know, every other adjustment you make in a system can only help a district, right? That, you know, if you're adjusting for at-risk students or you're adjusting for special ed students or anyone else, it, it only ever goes up. Um, but you're starting everything at a one point or above. And so you're absolutely right. Um, to, you know, to truly show the relationship of cost based on what you're picking, you would apply it both ways. I think in the end, it becomes, um, in most states, the only way you can get this in is to do that, is to make it the 1.0 or above, because once you go the other direction, it just, it becomes impossible to get it as part of the formula. And so what, what you do have happen is, um, those who really do have higher costs end up getting nothing, um, because you want it to be, you know, more uh, statistically sound. And so it, it's big, I think the expediency term you use is, is the right term. And that's what sort of jumps out. I just think that that's important to have out in the open that, um, you know, it's, it's more a matter of palatability than it is a matter of what's appropriate statistically or, or from an economic standpoint, because that relationship is what really matters. Um, the other thing that always strikes me when we have this conversation, and, and I'm, I'm reluctant to ask this question because, the, because you don't want to look at the the mathematical results to decide which one you like. And, yeah. and that seems to be, you know, what, what we're bogged down in. But the materiality of the differences in terms of movement of dollars within the, within the pupil center funding plan, um, looking at each of the different columns of, of choices that we've had along the way. Thank you for giving us so many of them. Um, really appreciate that. But I think the materiality is something that um, I'm not sure if it's understated or overstated. Right now, it's not stated at all. But I think having some, some feeling for that materiality might be helpful. And I don't know if that's something that you've computed or something that Jeremy may have computed. But I think seeing that might, might help understand moving from option A, B to C is making the selection will only move this much money or only affect the equation by this much. Um, so I just throw that out there too, and either you or Jeremy or Amanda perhaps comment on that. Yeah, I can start and then Amanda, why don't you pick up a little bit and, and we can go to Jeremy. We definitely back in the original CW, uh, the 2018 work, when there was only one adjustment above and in part what we found is some of the adjustments below 1.0 were so great they were actually wiping out all the small district um, kind of 
necessary small schools adjustments. So part of that was more than just expediency. Part of it was, wow, like we, we've done one thing over here and it's taken it completely away over there. And so that became a little hard to, to think about implementation. I think we're, we're not there as much now because most of the adjustments are either a little bit closer to 1.0 or actually have a number of districts above 1.0. So we wouldn't quite have that, but I, we have not, um, Amanda, maybe you have modeled these district by district um, on the new, the new pieces. Amanda Brown, for the record, I do not have updated model modeling for where we landed with the MCI. Um, I vaguely remember we were somewhere around 80 million in earlier iterations, but I don't have a very specific number for you right now, Greg, on where we are. But that's something I think we'd want to make sure we were speaking with Jeremy on, because it in part depends on, you know, because it's a multiplier where your base was and I want to be consistent with Jeremy about where we landed on a model. So Jeremy, I'm, I'm slightly kicking the can over to you on that one. Sure. Sorry about that. That was my fault. Um, I'm happy to just do it this way. I'm happy to talk you through um, we've got and as Justin said before and I would like first of all I'd never be upset with Justin about coming up with something different um, that's just kind of what this process will do but in recognizing that there have been a number of iterations the way we structured um, the blueprint was to allow the selection of any of the alternatives that have been provided I don't know if it's appropriate to share my screen not share my screen whatever you want me to do I'm happy to do it but the the you know the we, we've we essentially went through all of the ones that have been provided and estimated it. Um, Amanda just mentioned the uh, NCEI with the base of one. She was absolutely right. That's about $80 million. We've got it at 85. We know we've got a little bit of extra revenue currently putting around the model, so that's probably a little bit higher than where it ended up. Um, going to Mr. Hobbs's uh, comment about order of magnitude, I, I would again echo Justin's. Um, a comment about the fact that you could potentially wash some things out one way or the other on that. And again, I'm happy to show my screen so you can see what that looks like. That's helpful. Um, um, but the other side of that, from a materiality standpoint, I'm not exactly sure what guy um, was intending to sort of focus on with that. But when I think about materiality, I think of it in the broader construct of four to five billion dollars worth of annual expenditures on K through 12 education, in which case it's a rounding error that we're talking about here, right? Um, and if we think about it in terms of um, the potential loss of revenue associated with a reduction in general fund allocations to education because local revenues coming over expectation, the potential loss of revenue associated with um, an alternative funding structure and what we've seen in recent history um, is orders of magnitude larger than the number we're talking about here with the CWI. Okay, thank you. Let's see if we have other questions and if we have more that would like to look at the uh, blueprint, then we can go back to having you share your screen, Jeremy. But I mean, I think that was a good answer that kind of put the context that I think that Guy was looking for. So other questions, conversations? Madam Chair, this is Dave Jensen for the record. Okay, let's go Dave and then Dusty. Dave? So before we see Jeremy's um, spreadsheets, because I, I do completely agree with Guy on that concept that ultimately 
we need to make a decision um, in the absence of trying to look individually at a district and saying what the impact is. So uh, with that, I, I want to hold to see Jeremy's um, work for just a couple of moments while we engage in a conversation on this topic. I do have to step back a little bit and discuss why did we recommend the NCEI or, and we put a lot of work on, checked up on some uh, work and to give us some new analyses. The concern about the 2013 CWI analysis is it didn't reflect that. And clearly one of the things that we all felt was important as we talk about the uniqueness of Nevada is there has to be a measure that takes into account what's happening here. And so that became that charge. And that becomes one of the biggest barriers for me um, with looking at just the simple CWI is that it's not a reflection of Nevada. And so the EI comes closer, but certainly is missing some of those um, housing analyses that uh, we need to look at. So that's why I think it's important for us to continue to take a look at what our options are. Um, I, I do, if I, all things being equal, hedonic, hedonic appears to be the most appropriate formula if we really want to look at a cost adjustment. But the pro, as we know, is the complexity of trying to update that. And we've already seen in the Nevada plan that if figures aren't updated, it puts us all behind. And so in the absence of that, I don't know what other choice we have. I have a hard time looking at 2013 national CWI data. Okay, Dusty? Yes, this is Dusty for the record, and thank you for the presentation. Um, a couple of questions. Dusty, number one, um, was there any thought to, rather than just um, move everybody below a metric of one, regardless of what, what um, metric you're looking at, was there any thought to chaining or indexing the value to the lowest possible or the lowest value, bringing that one essentially to one? And in order to um, keep the integrity of the model, I kind of echo what um, Member Hobbs said, was that when you time you have a mathematical model, it's in, that's showing differences and capturing those differences. Um, I have a little bit of heartburn with just adjusting the model and taking numbers randomly below one and just fixing them up one. However, if you index them to the lowest value and essentially fixing that at one and raising the rest of them incrementally or proportionally, I should say, that might be, I don't know if you looked at that um, at all. <laughs> Amanda, you want to go? go ahead and answer that one? Yeah. Okay. Amanda Brown, for the record, we did look at that um, primarily in the 18 study of uh, where should you do the indexing. And in part, we landed on indexing to the average because the base that we were coming up from that time was a statewide figure. Um, so it did not represent, say, your absolute lowest cost point. Um, but when, if you think about benchmarking it to the lowest, and you think of at the time, I think we had a range of like 0.89 up to 1.03. If you index to the lowest point, you start getting a difference that's, I think it was something like 15% or so. So you might end up with, if everyone's at one, you now have your one district that had the adjustment getting a 15% increase. Um, so it felt like the spread of the difference was a little too much to be building into the formula when we were already seeing just with the average running it down 
it wiping out the other adjustments. So we didn't feel comfortable with that scale of adjustment. Um, so like I said, we went to statewide average knowing you were applying it to a base figure that's representative of the time it was a successful schools, which included school figures from across the state. So that's why we went with indexing to the average versus indexing to the lowest point. Thank you. This is Dusty again. This is Dusty again for the record. Um, but if I'm looking at this chart, if I'm looking at the NCEI metric, there's not a huge difference. I'm looking at the lowest value of looks like 0.982 on slide 11 versus the highest of 1.031. You know, so it's like 0.982 is the lowest. If that, if everything was chained to that, and that was fixed at one, we would, and then raise the other ones proportionally to the same percentage if that comes up, then, then at least we would maintain the integrity of those differences in the mathematical model. So I don't, I don't think the differences would be that, um, that great. Um, my other question was on the blending, that NCEI. I just want to be clear that the, the blending is 72% of that metric is CWI for all workers and wages. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other 28% is the cost of living, which includes housing. Is that correct? Um, Amanda Brown, for the record, it is actually, if Justin went back to the RPP slide, the RPP is made up of three components, rents, goods, and other services. For the NCI, we use the goods component of that um, because it was being applied to the non-personnel items. Um, so if that makes sense, the all, all items would really be your total basket of goods, which includes things that your wages would be addressing. Um, so we went with just the goods items represent that your non-personnel wages might be influenced by your cost of getting goods into your community. So in other words, then, so the other 28% of that only is only the goods portion, which takes out any housing, like the rent. Correct. Because as uh, Justin mentioned, the theory of action within a CWI is that it has counted for housing because it's based on the wages that you pay people. So it would be kind of a, not a double count, but um, just a, a mixing of the two, where we try to keep it fairly pure, which one was based on the wages and which was based on just the cost of goods in the community. Thank you. This is Jason. Can I put in the queue? Yes, you're up. I think I see Mark. Mark, did you have one also? Okay, so Jason, then Mark. Great, thanks. Um, I, I think that Justin's explanation earlier really helped me understand this concept because, as, as I mentioned last time, I was struggling um, trying to understand it. But I think his point about the fact that the CWI takes into consideration the attractiveness of the community or the location and its ability to attract workers regardless of cost. And, and I'm gonna use Carlene's home as an example of Hawaii, which is a very, very high cost of living, has a very, very high attractiveness level, and they are able to get people to work there because of the fact, those other factors. So I think that that's the piece today that really helped me understand the concept of the CWI, CWI much better. And given that, um, I guess given that explanation and, and how we've worked these other components in, I feel significantly more comfortable, at least as this is the base. I think this is something we're going to continue to, to look at over time, but I'm, I'm, I'm much more comfortable now 
taking that holistic approach and, and looking at all the factors in and understanding it. Um, and, and just, again, I, I have the same concerns that, that both Guy and, and Dusty raised that, um, you know, the whole point is relative uh, uh, proportionality within these calculations. As soon as you raise the bottom and do not touch the top, you're essentially diminishing the actual evaluation. And uh, obviously we've, we've engaged experts who have also looked at other experts, uh, economists, to try and drive this. So I think that, you know, that's something that's, that's very challenging. And, and yet I understand the political motives or challenges behind trying to get something uh, below one. But if it's the right way to do it, I think you know, that's where we should go. Hey, Mark. We can't hear you. Are you on mute still? Sorry. Sorry. That's okay. So my question is more for Jeremy. I mean, as we noted, um, or as our interim superintendent noted, um, you know, GoEd puts out data that indicates that the private sector wages are highest in Washoe. And um, that doesn't seem to comport with the CWI calculations. And, and so I guess we're, I guess this isn't a question for Jeremy, but I guess we're saying GoEd is just wrong um, with their data they collect and report on. Um, but I guess, Jeremy, I go back to, you know, more than a year ago when you know, you, you had reached out to some stakeholders and we were looking at CWI and, and, and I know we had challenges looking at it then um, in, in trying to um, develop data that we all felt reflected reality. Um, I mean, I just, I'm looking for your take. It looks like we see numbers all across the board uh, depending on the methodology we use or depending on the time frame we use or the source data we use. And that really concerns me that it doesn't look like um, we're getting valid or reliable and or reliable data consistently. What, you have thoughts on, since you've been kind of involved in, from day one in trying to incorporate a CWI measure in SB 543, do you have thoughts on, on that question and why the numbers are all over the place? I don't know that I can uh, provide sort of insight in terms of why the numbers are all over the place, Mark. I, I think that, um, you know, there's a number of different indices, and I think they tell you a number of different things, right? I think the thing that you struggle with and that I struggled with prior to the legislative session and certainly now um, is, you know, Outside of this exercise right here, we do a fair amount of, of work in the Washoe County area. Um, we know that the cost of living is difficult. We know that it's difficult to get employees to come there. We know that there's a housing shortage and an employee shortage and all those things that are putting dramatic upward pressure on, on, well, on many things within that region. And I said it during the legislative session, and so I'll certainly not back away from what I said then, is that I have real concerns about you know, any index that's going to disadvantage or, or suggest that the, whether it's attractiveness or whether it's the cost, I, I realize those are very different things. And I think Justin makes a really 
really good point and one that should not be ignored. And I don't want to be suggesting that I'm doing that. But I don't, I will, I will, I will, I'm not going to change what I told you throughout the legislative session and what I'm saying now is that anything that comes in with a number that is below one for Washoe County is going to leave me with some degree of concern for the simple fact that um, what we are seeing every day feels counterintuitive to that. And so, look, I, I, I don't know which one of these are right. I, I don't want to, you know, my, my, I'm not going to try and substitute my judgment for the other experts that are here, but I, I don't, I, I certainly don't want to leave you with the impression that, that while we had a conversation about prior to the legislative session, during the legislative session, and what you and I have talked about from time to time relative to the challenges in a, in a state that was growing as fast as we were and an economy that was growing by the nature of what we saw in Washoe County is something that I can, I can just, you know, turn a blind eye to. And so I continue to have those concerns. Thank you. And, and I had maybe one other question. Can we respond just really quick to that piece? Um, yes, sir. Yeah, this is Justin Silverstein for record. You all know your context better than we do. And I think it's why I, I said it before, and I want to say it again, whatever you pick, it needs to be data that you can update frequently. So the, the CWI is running off federal data that is collected yearly through the American Community Survey. But it's whatever you collect is always going to lag. The original CWI, which I think had things even further back, and that was 2013 data. So that was nowhere near more recent data. So um, I just, you know, wherever you land, I think the points that Mark you're making and, and that Jeremy's making that things change quickly, especially in a state that has, you know, different types of industries, you want something that's going to update then very quickly also and try to keep up. But it's never going to, it's always going to lag. Right, so whatever you see in an indice, it's going to be a year or two old data, so it's going to lag your current reality no matter what. I mean, that's just the way indices work because you have to have data that's been collected generally. This clearly is lagging. This is still showing data that is making people uncomfortable, even though it's you know, they, it's a picture of two probably two years ago now, but it's clearly making folks uncomfortable that even that two-year-old picture wasn't right for what show. And but. But it is, you know, federal data that's being collected consistently across every community in the country. So, you know, that's the other piece. So you could you could try to develop something with statewide data that perhaps people trust, you know, that, that people feels a little bit more in tune with what's going on in the state. And Amanda, I see you. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, Ben, for the record, the only thing I just wanted to say was, um, you know, we're in no way saying that the GoEd data is incorrect or, or what they came up with is wrong. I haven't reviewed their data or their methodologies, but... As we can see, looking at different data sources, different approaches, you can have differences. So I just, I don't want to say that we are saying their information is wrong. So. Well, I, I, I can't reconcile when they say private sector wages are higher in Washoe than Clark, that should be reflected in a CWI measure clearly. And so there is a disagreement between the calculations for CWI that become part of NCEI and what GOED is reporting. I mean, they, they're just irre irreconcilable. But my other question, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take an example. Uh, this is showing Churchill County has an NCEI number of 1.03 and Washoe has 0.986. Churchill County and Fallon 
are, to some respect, excerpts of Washoe County. We have employees who live in Churchill because of the lower cost of housing and commute to, to Washoe. And what this is saying is that Churchill County has to offer salaries 5% higher than Washoe. And that is not accurate. Um, that, and, and, and the same goes for, you know, Carson. Churchill has to offer 5% higher salaries than Carson City, according to this, um, to be competitive. I don't believe that's true either. So, the, you know, again, we go back to the public commentary that our interim superintendent provided. This just doesn't pass the sniff test when you start to make those comparisons. And uh, it, it, I mean, I don't know if, um, again, Jeremy, who has a lot of experience in the state would want to comment or whether Dusty would want to comment on that um, since that's where he's from. But it, it just doesn't make sense to me that, um, that 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 would be an implication of this that churchill would have to offer higher salaries than washoe for folks to live there because i don't think that's true okay aj did you have a comment thank you um i so i kind of forgot my comment now um i i guess i just want to say i i feel like we are I don't know if there's a resolution to this at this point. Um, I mean, clearly a lot of work has been done, and I, I, I don't think, I don't think any of us would. I mean, us, to speak for myself, I think it's reasonable to consider. I, I keep wanting to say cost of living, but just consider that there's some maybe factor, fudge factor that should be incorporated related to some of this discussion. I just, I just don't feel like we're there. I, I think, you know, Justin had commented that you, it just, it seems like folks are not comfortable with this. Um, and, and seeing some of that, the data that uh, Commissioner Mathers is talking about is is a little troubling. And at the same time, I, maybe, maybe it, it, it all does make sense. And I'm just not smart enough to understand that. But um, I mean, for, for me at this point, I, I feel like it, it should be considered uh, as a part of the discussion, but maybe the future discussion and simply to move forward at this point at 1.0 for everyone and let's just move along. And then over the next years, we can figure this out because I, I just feel like this is really complicated and it, if, if this is going to move forward and people are gonna feel comfortable, it can't move forward. Okay. Um. I have Madam Chair, this is Paul, if you have a moment. Sure. Paul. Yeah, I've been in my office jumping up and down, raising my hands, and I realized I didn't have a video screen. So. <laughs> it was tough. Hey. Jump louder. Just jump louder yeah, next yeah. time. I was waving as loud as I could, honestly. I, I just had a couple of comments. Um, we uh, First of all, I like the concept of the NCEI, um, mostly because um, of, of like a reverse issue that market indicated um, and, I, and I guess my example would be how much would we have to pay somebody to live in Hawthorne to keep them in Hawthorne and have them not move to a washer or something like that or how much would we have to pay uh, somebody who lives in Ely to not have them move down to Las Vegas and I think that NTEI attempts to identify that attractiveness feature which, which I think 
Art is a good concept. Um, I, you know, I think maybe we just need to vet the data just to make sure that everybody's comfortable with the data that's going in, so the results come out makes sense to everybody. Um, and I had a comment about the uh, moving everybody up to one, and I and I understand, and I kind of agree. If you have a formula and it provides these results, we should go into results, not arbitrarily move that bar. Um, and maybe that's something that we can do once we get to optimal funding. But I think in this transition where we're going from some place that we know that is not quite accurate to uh, a level of adequacy, unless we're raising the amount of money for everybody, I don't know if it makes sense to drop a factor that may cause an entity to lose money. And I think that might lend some merit to leaving people at one and not having them um, reduce at some point. I, I did like the concept of having chaining them and having a, a spark and moving everybody up. Um, but, and I kind of wanted to tie all this stuff back to uh, Guy's original um, discussion about materiality. Because um, all of these formulas and factors are going to be linked. And as we change one factor, we change the results. Um, and here we're talking about uh, a change from a 1.03 to a 1.01 from one factor to another. Um, and in the grand scheme of things, is it really going to matter that much? It, is the change in any one of these factors really going to have a material impact on the result in any one school district? And, and for me, I, I, I don't want to make a decision on any of these factors so I can actually see maybe all three of these run through the model to see what's resulting, my bottom line. Um, but preliminarily, I do like concepts of the NCEI. I think it, it was developed based on what our recommendations or our queries and questions and comments to the consultants was. Um, but, you know, like Mark has indicated, if there's a way for us to make certain that the data that he's referencing and the cost values that affect Washoe are reasonably reflected in the um, in this factor, then, then maybe that's all we need. So those are all my comments. That's all I have. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Um, I hear some paper rustling, so remember to go back on mute once you're uh, done talking, okay? Um, and I, I have a, two questions. I don't see anybody else raising their hand, so if I'm missing something, make sure you let me know. Uh, Justin, could you, one, you, could you go back to your recommendation, and just before you go back to your recommendation, at one point you were talking about a hybrid, which sort of gave you column A or column B, and you pick whichever one uh, gave you the best outcome, for lack of a better way to say that. Um, could you kind of go back to that on the screen? And then I'd like to know why that wasn't your recommendation and why you felt the, um, at the end of the day, the Nevada Education Cost Index was better. So if I'm remembering right, and um, it was a couple meetings ago, and, and so I want to, any of the work group members, you know, you can correct me, or Amanda. Um, the better of went over like a lead balloon, um, I think, with the group uh, at the time. Our theory was that, you know, there were some who really believe in the RPP, there are some who really believe in the CWI, and then this gave folks the opportunity, maybe at a time where you then develop a more specific Nevada-specific approach down the line to say we're using something and we're allowing for, you know, RPP, which has more of the housing costs in it, 
to be in there for those folks who really are being driven more by the housing costs, and then CWI for those who are being driven more by CWI. In part, you know, it, it is an absolute, it, it feels like a bit of a balance, and I think we felt we could, we, the, the NCI tried to meld those two approaches together in a more nuanced way, and so we were more comfortable with that. You know, by no means are we against the idea of the better of, we, especially if it's, it's a shorter term, let's get something in the model, you know, that the phrase of standing up the model, it makes people more comfortable that they aren't getting hurt by data they don't quite um, believe in. I think that's a perfectly fine, you know, place to go. Um, but, you know, we think, again, the NCI ha has some mix there. And, it, you know, we are happy to take a look at the data um, that the Mark is mentioning. I, you know, I heard a couple things. I just want to vet it that, you know, the professional salaries are growing the fastest in Washoe. Um, that, that is somewhat different than being the highest. And so we want to take a look at that information. When you look at the, um, the CWI information for bachelors or above, Clearly, Washington is the second highest um, factor across the state. So, you know, we want to take a look at that underlying data because it could be that, um, you know, the economic development group is already collecting the data you would need to, to do something like that specific data. Okay. And then could you go back to your actual recommendation to the group for today? Um, Madam Chair, Megan Peterson, if I could interject for a moment. Um, to help give some clarity and maybe some background as well, within our current equity allocation model, I did want to flag for members of the committee um, that we do have a floor that was built in place um, within the wealth adjustment for districts who were below the statewide average, which in the current model was Clark and Washoe. They both came in um, 0.96 for Clark and 0.99 for Washoe. Um, and these were based on expenditures from two years ago. So this is an existing problem that we've been dealing with based on building in a floor within this system. So that could be another thing that we could consider going forward. All right, and I think that might have been part of the recommendation. That's why I wanted to go back, is I think part of the recommendation was to start at one and then apply. But I, I wanted to go back and see it and hear it, Justin. Yeah, so the recommendation is um, right here, and, and it's exactly that, which is use NCEI, uh, but at 1.0 or above um, is our recommendation. I, you know, in hearing, you know, the, the question of rebasing so that the lowest number is one, you know, kind of around the statewide average, I, again, I, we would not be against that by any means, especially because the, um, the differential is, is pretty small around one, so you're not having huge huge uh, flow. This is really from our experience in other states where, again, the expediency piece that, that Mr. Hobbs talked about, um, if you don't start at one, it just makes it much harder to implement this at all. If you don't have, you know, if you don't keep everybody at one point or above. Okay, so just as a restatement, so your, the recommendation mm -hmm. uh, before the commission is using NCEI, and recommending that it only be applied when above 1.0, yes. and that at some point we should have a conversation about the placement in that waterfall and potentially phasing it in, maybe over time or at some point in time, mm -hmm. and then updating this information on each biennium so that you consider collecting district by district data to refine it. 
Is that yeah. the entire recommendation? That's the entire recommendation. Amanda, did I, did I miss well, anything? Yeah. I think you summarized it well. Okay. It's, all righty. <laughs> that was my goal in life. So let me see. So I think I almost heard AJ uh, make a motion about starting at one. Do I hear any motion that is connected either to this recommendation or about something so that we are able to at least have the formula run and that we can, again, give guidance to the district so they can complete their work and we can do a comparative analysis and at least under this particular recommendation, there is a caveat to continue to review and consider. So um, let's kind of go there. Yeah, sure. yeah AJ. Thank you. So, and, and I just want to be clear with what I was recommending. So, I, I agree with of the the points here in the final recommendations. Um, I guess the you know considering where this gets placed, I, I think I, mean, I feel like that's somewhat been determined, but um maybe maybe not as a, as a part of calculating that adjusted base per pupil but um as far as updating each biennium and consider you know collecting data and, and, all, and all that i think that's fine i i'm i'm really i was just i'm looking at this um information that dr mcneil from Marshall provided and again i i just i feel like i'm not smart enough to, to reconcile that sort of thing and there just needs to be some more done on that so I, i'm i am not recommending that we start at 1.0 and work up from there based on the ncei I, my my thought is that we we put i guess like this placeholder in there recognizing that this is an important thing and i, and I think it makes sense but we just don't know what exactly it is yet so you have this regional cost adjustment um, placeholder put in but at this point in time it's just 1.0 so that all districts effectively no district benefits no district is hurt um, but it allows the NDE to move forward with putting that into the model and, and Jeremy so you can put that or Mr. Guerrero so you can put that into his model um, and, and then we move move forward so we can start getting some of these numbers in. Madam Chair, this is Paul. Um, if, if we're to motion. We've got Guy. Let's go ahead with Guy, and then I think I hear Mark, and then there's someone talking. So that would be Paul. Oh, Chair, I, actually, I think Paul was uh, Paul jumped in, so I would certainly yield to him and then come back. Okay, so let's go, Paul, Guy, and then Mark. Okay. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Thanks, Guy. I appreciate that. Um, I, I guess for the purposes of us moving on, uh, I have a comment as a question. Um, I don't know that there's any danger with us moving forward with the formula based on these recommendations. And I'd be willing to make a motion that we follow the recommendations that are incorporated in here from APA uh, with the understanding that when we go through the machinations of the formula, we see something we don't like, we can change it as a federal agency. Um, and then my, my question would be, 
Um, how different, and then maybe this is a question for Jeremy, um, how difficult would it be to model three different scenarios of these um, uh, factors? It's already done. Well, that was that was perfect. I like that. We could have that answer for everything we're dealing with. That would really speed up some time. Okay. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, do you already actually have a motion on the floor? No. Not, we do not actually have, that's what I was going for. I was okay. uh, searching, searching for, I almost have one from Paul. Yeah. He said I would be willing to. So that's the closest oh, okay. I've gotten. So there is no motion as of yet. Well, I'll take a, I'll take a shot based on Paul's willingness. Um, and again, this, this is more within the spirit of knowing that we need to move on and we need to stand something up in the model. Anything that we stand up in the model is subject to change. Uh, because I, I'm a little bit uncomfortable about the fact that we've taken all of this analytical work and we're trying to mold it into something that feels good to us and that we like. And all of a sudden, the meaningfulness of all the analytics that have, that have been done before, and I mistakenly called uh, Justin Jason by, uh, by those folks, goes out the window. And instead, what we're doing is coming up with a proxy just to be able to run the model. Um, in the spirit of maybe trying to get down the middle of the fairway between, you know, just doing something that as, as a one, and I understand exactly where AJ's coming from, um, but that almost seems to not recognize the fact that this, this could be a meaningful statistic. It obviously is to a lot of folks. Uh, and, and around the country, it's, it's used uh, to try to recognize those differences. Um, so I would be more inclined to recommend by way of a motion, just so you can all uh, tell me how bad the motion is, I guess, that we use the NCI, the NCEI as recommended by APA, but base everybody at one or greater for purposes of standing up the model only. Knowing that we have to come back and resolve those issues relating to why the Washoe data seems like a bit of an outlier. And we still need to address the issue, at least in my opinion, of the relationship between uh, the numbers as they've been put forth by APA. You know, the, the whole issue of sliding some that are below one up to one just because that feels better and not maintaining the relationship between those that are below and those that are above. So for the time being, my recommendation motion would be using NCEI, but basing those below, uh, below one at this time to the value of one, just for purposes of standing up the model. Okay, Mark, let me see if we have a second for that motion, and then we'll take your comment before any vote, okay? <laughs> Uh, Paul, was that a second? Yeah, that's a second. That's essentially what the slide says. It sounded better when I said it anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, so open for discussion. Let's go to Mark and then Dave for discussion. Thank you, Madam Chair. I, I, I don't think it's a bad motion, Guy, to, to make you. So I'll, I'll just say that. But 
I mean, I would. I mean, you said you want people to tell you it's a bad motion. I won't tell you it's a bad motion. Um, <laughs> the one thing, though, was that others, many other states do this. Um, and, and I just have to point out 38 states out of 50 or more, basically three quarters of states don't do any cost adjustment like this. So I thought it actually made a motion to hold everything at one. And if we're talking about standing up the model, then that serves that purpose. Um, but I, I, I just want to point out, most states don't do this. And maybe for the reasons that we're struggling with today, it, there's just winners and losers. And you go back and forth in the data. And the data doesn't look right in certain circumstances. And we can't figure out why it doesn't look right at the moment. And so, I mean, I, I am in favor of AJ's pseudo motion or quasi motion or whatever it was to, to, to hold everything at one until we come to some consensus. So that's my, that's my comment. Okay. Uh, Dave. Thank you, Madam Chair, Dave Jensen for the record. And I, I echo that same thing, Guy, you made a great motion. So nobody's going to tell you it's a bad motion. What, where I'm wanted to have an answer, and so I'm sending this question to Justin, because I, I keep thinking about us talking about we've got one shot at this thing to make it uh, the best model possible and make it a Nevada model. So to make it a truly Nevada-centric model, would it need to be hedonic versus the other two options? I don't think so. I think, um, again, you're using data collected in a recognizable way across your state. Um, and so I, I don't think it has to be hedonic. I think the bigger question about making something Nevada specific or more Nevada specific over time is the level of specificity of data collection. So what we do know with all, almost all the data collection you have now, there are a handful of districts who just get the same number because you don't collect data in, in every individual small community. But it doesn't have to be hedonic versus CWI versus cost of living. All of those can be Nevada specific. Great. Thank you, Justin. And that leads to question two. And Justin, this is for you. And then it's going to help me as, as I ultimately vote one way or the other. When we look at the um, NCEI and we've got those four that we would, we would move up to one, that was one of the groupings in our NCEI. Yet, I, I know that the cost of living, in particular, Douglas County, kind of as Mark has expressed in Washoe County, is very high. So can you just talk real briefly about that grouping that includes Carson, Douglas, Lyon, and Story, and how those figures came out, just uh, so that we're all on the same page? Justin Silverstein, for the record, I'm not sure I, I know exactly what you're saying. Again, it's the data that's coming from the, the federal data and then from RPP. So it's mixing both of those. You know, it's, it's using the 72% and the 28% um, ratios between the RPP data and the, the CWI data. Are, you know, all the data in the system is collected the same across the board. So there's no differential. Um, it's, it's all using the same data sets. Can I jump in, Justin? Um, in part, the, why the groupings were, um, that came from the, the, the CWI to have enough people in the, in the area to be able to produce a reliable statistics. So you ended up with 
Vegas met its own, um, Washoe had its own, then um, Carson Douglas Story and um, we're all grouped together to have enough individuals to create a statistic and then everyone else in the state got a rest of the state. Um, so that was to Justin's point about the, the level of specificity of any of these sources of information that's collected that you could get to. Um, so that's how they were grouped together as neighboring districts to get to the level of population that you needed to have a, a PUMA for the census data. And so that's set by the census department. Thank you. Yeah, I think we had a question from Lisa. Lisa, you still have a question? Remember? More sibling? Okay. Um, okay. Thanks. Um, any other comments? Otherwise, I'm going to go back to the... This is uh, Dusty. I have, a, I have a question. Okay, and I think I've got an A So continuing, this is specifically about the motion, right? So connected to the motion that we have on the table, which is adopting the NCEI as recommended with a minimum of one or greater. So it will be applied at one or greater. Okay, Dusty, then AJ. Yes, this is Dusty. And just real quick, um, <clears throat> I feel very strongly that, I, I, I guess I should say, I feel very uncomfortable altering the results of mathematical models, regardless of which one we choose. I don't mind adopting the NCEI to send it up. Um, however, just using the results of one or greater, I think sets us up for future problems as more data comes in. I understand we can analyze this going forward, but if we really want to see the impact of the differences between districts, I think the only way to do that is to take the results of the mathematical model as they are, possibly chaining to the lowest value, making that one one, and, and maintaining the integrity of those differences. Otherwise, we don't know what the differences really are when we get the results and look at those numbers. And two years or four years from now, when new data comes out, the models it's going to change because of we're just altering the results. So I don't mind using any math. I don't mind using the NCEI. I just don't think we should be changing the results of it. And that's the only comment I have. Okay, understood. AJ? Thank you. Um, thank you, Madam Chair. Um, so I think the one of the great concerns I have with just making this choice to move on when I think 1.0 is a choice to get the model, stand the model up as we want to do, is just this idea like you, you make a choice like this and it is a psychological anchor that is hard to pull away from once the choice is made. And I, I realize that we're all talking about that, you know, we can revise this and look at it later. But again, I feel like there's discomfort with this and I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, look, I, you know, Yes, there should be something like this, or I, you know, I, I think we generally agree. I don't know. Maybe I'm. I just think that, but you know, some recognition of it, I'm okay with. But just let's stand it up with 1.0 and see what it looks like. I, I, I think it's effectively doing the same thing, but without kind of the discomfort of some of these really, really different numbers that we're seeing. Um, and I, I don't know. I just I don't think it's an unreasonable request okay so we have a motion on the table and we actually have two two at least that i can count up uh, three actually alternative concepts right now mark suggested to 
possibly no calculation of this at all. 38 states don't use it. AJ, you suggested perhaps just one across the board and further uh, exploration, and, and Dusty has uh, suggested using NCEI but removing the one as a minimum. But we have a motion on the board. So on the table, so let's go ahead and move forward. We have a motion, we have a second. Let's go forward with a vote. I have been asked to go one by one sort of roll call. So I apologize, we don't usually do that, but since it's virtual and it's really hard to see Paul jump around, um, <laughs> we want to be able to capture each of the votes for this. Let's see where this one goes. And then um, if we need to make another motion or have continued conversation, we can do that. Uh, so, repeating, Guy, could you run that motion one more time, or do you think I did an okay job of uh, capturing what you said? I, I think you, I think you stated it uh, accurately. The, on, the only other things I attached to the motion was, uh, and I think the AJ noted this um, by way of his concerns, is that there's a continued effort to look into I agree with what Dusty said, you know, for example, losing the mathematical identity, that's actually a preference, but I know that we have to land someplace today, and I'm not sure we're going to resolve it. Um, that's why I made the motion the way I did, is trying to find some middle ground. I, I don't see a difference, for example, between doing the um, calculation at one or not doing it at all, because I think they come out to the same place, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's 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 substantially no difference and I do think if you do either of those uh, as AJ mentioned you know you do I suppose create some psychological attachment to that not being a factor so that cuts both ways and again I was just trying to throw something out that I think is perhaps mathematically imperfect but at the end of the day what we're going to have is something that's mathematically imperfect and palatable that's, that's what's going to decide this at the end of the day. So the motion is as you read it, and those are just additional comments for the heck of it. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Uh, Jessica, hopefully you're there. Um, could you just sort of do a roll call in order and uh, take folks' votes? That way we have everybody on the list and I don't skip anybody who I may not see on the screen. Yes, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Um, I'm going to go in alphabetical order as always. So, Member Casey. Okay. Member Fueling. <laughs> Member Gowdy. Yes. Vice Chair Hobbs. Yes. Member Jensen. Yes. Member Johnson. Yes. Member Mathers. Nay. Chair McCormick Lee. Uh, yay. Yes. Member McIntosh. Yes. Member Morris Sibler. Yes. That is seven yeses and three noes. The motion carries. Okay, thank you uh, very much. It's, it's a hard one, folks. Um, so I want to appreciate all the really good thinking. I think a critical piece of, of the motion for me was the further. 
Um, so AJ, uh, we need, you and I need to make sure that we work very diligently to make sure we don't get stuck in that, uh, in the rut, so to speak, that you, you, uh, potentially saw for us. So AJ, I see you have a comment. Go ahead. Yeah, and I, I apologize. I, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but can the, and I plan asked Mr. Aguero something before about various, you know, iterations to get ready. But if we could see the, the, the what it looks like with the head CDI, but then also with one that went on across the board. Right. I believe that we have time with Jeremy, uh, quality time tomorrow with Jeremy. Does that sound right, Jeremy? Tomorrow? Yes, ma'am. All right. So that's my hope for that we'd be able to see that tomorrow. We want to make sure that we move through some of the items today. And that way, we'll not only just see this one item in isolation, but we'll be, see the, some of the impact of the uh, other things that we need to look at and, today. And then we'll be able to go through that, uh, that uh, blueprint with Jeremy. Uh, it's not on our agenda today to walk through the blueprint. So I'm trying to make sure that I adhere to the current agenda that is out there and then walk through the blueprint in some detail tomorrow with Jeremy. Okay, AJ? All right, so we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks. Thank you for your uh, patience uh, to be able to take a look at that information tomorrow. All right, with that, let's go on to the next agenda item, which we have, which is necessarily small school adjustment. Uh, Amanda, did Justin throw this to you last time? Yep, yep, I'll be doing okay. this with you all. So let me share my screen and hopefully I'm successful. And as you're doing this, maybe everybody else figured it out, but I was poking around in the bottom right-hand side of her PowerPoint. You can actually click on that uh, icon and it will pull it out of your screen and you can enlarge it on your computer if you so desire. Hopefully that's helpful tip for the day. Amanda, you um, Almost. We okay. said that, and then mine got very small. So, oh. can you guys see the PowerPoint? I can. Okay. So, I was trying to figure out if there's a way I could see it big and see you guys, and I can't quite figure that out. So, um, I will do questions at the end since I can't see anyone's faces right now or gestures. Um, so we have one presentation for you all on size for today. Um, where we landed on um, the last meetings was that we had decided to include the necessarily small schools, as was recommended. Um, on the district size, we had had a question about if it should be looked at based on attendance areas instead of district size. Um, so we were asked to look at that, so that's what we've done for this uh, meeting. I very briefly want to review what that size adjustment and the necessary small schools recommendations were, and then talk through what does that look like if you apply it to attendance areas, how does that compare against the original um, potential cost impact of change, and you'll see very ballpark figures here because I, I refer wholly to Jeremy on actual figures out of the modeling. Um, some considerations that we have for the city and what our recommendations are. So first, just very quickly, 
from the, the work that we did in the study, we came up with a district size adjustment that took a couple formulas. When you apply those formulas to district enrollment, it comes up with a size factor for each district that's then applied to their base enrollment. Um, and we went through a, a lengthy review that this is uh, a well-supported adjustment when you look at um, other information from the AAR study, from what other states do, um, and looking at how kind of the, the BSR currently adjusts for size once you take out some of the other wealth and other measures related to it. So we felt very good about the size adjustment. So the question was really just, is the district size the, the factor you want to consider, or do you want to go a step lower and look at a tense areas? Um, so the necessarily small schools adjustment, which was approved by the, the committee, was to do a tiered implementation um, with a minimum threshold. So um, any school that has uh, fewer than seven students gets a minimum of a teacher and assistant principal going between uh, seven students up to 50 was the original recommendation of one teacher per seven plus that assistant principal. We then tiered that out, um, increasing the number of students per teacher up to about 150 students. Um, this adjustment is generates per pupil funding net of the given district size adjusted base funding amount. So where the, where the 150 kind of diverts into is what the, the base was. So we thought it was a good tiered implementation going on up for anything smaller than that. So again, the question was to consider if we should apply this adjustment to attendance areas instead of districts. Um, attendance areas were identified in the Nevada plan funding model, and they were developed based on city centers or towns that were geographically isolated. So we just use the identification of those attendance areas that was already done um, for funding purpose by the, the department. Um, what we found is when you apply the adjustment to the attendance areas, it's not really related to the density of the district, and we'll show these figures to talk through, but it's more closely aligned to the overall geographic size of the district. And then just an example of really how this change would affect a, a given district. If you use an example of a district of 4,000 students that had four attendance areas, using the prior district size uh, based adjustment, it would have a size factor of 1.08, and any small schools within a district would also receive additional funding. If you moved instead to doing this by attendance area, you'll see that the Adjustment is now based on the size of the attendance area. So the smaller the attendance area gets, the bigger the adjustment. So if in this district of 4,000 students, they had four attendance areas ranging from 500 to 2,000 students, they now have a weighted size factor of 1.41 versus 1.08. So it can create um, rather large differences between those two. And again, even under this model, you still get the, the necessarily small schools funding on top of that. So this chart is showing each of the districts. It is showing the, the weighted average daily attendance. So it's a little different than some of the enrollment figures that we've had, but that was the, the number of students tied to the uh, attendance area data that we had. So that's the kid count that we're using here, even though it's slightly different than what we've used before. Then you have um, square miles, just based on census information. Uh, square miles per student, the number of attendance areas, and then how the adjustments played out. So what I was highlighting here is 
the ones in bold are the places that had kind of above a 5% change based on moving to attendance areas. And what you'll see here is that um, when I said before, it's really related to the geographic size. You can see that the places that receive the biggest change in difference are your bigger um, districts in terms of how, how many miles they cover. It's not necessarily related to how many kids are in um, each of those square miles. So if you look, a good example, Elko is very large, but it's also a pretty big district. So its miles per student is relatively um, low. So it's a very spread out district. You'll see they have 11 attendance areas. Um, Clark is also one that has a lot of different attendance areas. The other piece I wanted to highlight here is if we looked at say Lander and Lincoln, they are very, very similarly sized districts, but they're very different in square miles. So that's why you'll see um, the change was very minimal for Lander, but very large for Lincoln. So the result is that two districts that are very similarly sized can be treated in very different ways once you apply it to attendance areas. So then here's a, a comparison chart, and what you'll see is um, the lightest green is the original adjustment then the attendance area plus the small schools. And then what we've been using is the comparison of what's in the current system, which is from the AAR study that looked at the um, basic support ratios for each district and identified the piece that they thought was just based on size. Um, so we've used that as kind of a comparison to what was currently being funded. You'll see across the board, um, uh, the original adjustments tended to be higher than they were in the BSR scale only. And then they are even higher once you start doing the attendance area. And the difference will go down to, um, I'll go ahead one more chart here. I apologize. Um, when you look at the difference, it's not that different for your smallest districts because they were already receiving very large adjustments through the necessarily small schools. So it's really your kind of 1,000 to 5,000 where you see your biggest differences in scale. Um, and then for some ballparking of what is that scale of potential cost impacts, under the original recommendations, the both size factors produce about an additional 50 million. Um, again, using the successful schools base from the 18th century, so this is very ballpark. Whereas if you did it by attendance area, it doubles the amount of funding that would be generated based upon size. So what we want the, the commission to think about, um, it does seem that adjusting for size based upon attendance areas addresses issues in larger, again, in terms of square miles, in terms of geographic size districts. We do have some concerns that it might overstate the need since transportation is a separate issue um, that's not included in base funding. And if the um, regional cost adjustment is addressing differences in cost of goods, um, and in part, the, another area it could be overstating is you, even if you're running five different attendance areas, you probably still only have one superintendent versus a district that just has one. So there, it might not be um, a fair adjustment to apply it to the whole thing. You might want to think about applying it to a smaller percentage of the total if you're going to do that. Um, as I mentioned, it doesn't have a very large impact on districts that are very small because they were already receiving extra funding. Um, and it leads to districts being treated very differently, even if they're similar size. So you want to make sure that there's additional data 
to ensure the difference um, is appropriate. So our recommendation for now is that for immediate modeling needs, you apply the original recommended size adjustment as is. We think it'd be good to continue talking about applying it to attendance areas as part of the optimal funding discussion. Um, and as part of that, we make sure that the attendance areas are sufficiently isolated to warrant separate treatment for funding. Because um, some of them, the attendance areas are much closer together in some districts than they are in others. So you want to make sure that it makes sense that they are operating um, in that manner. I'd suggest getting additional feedback from impacted districts to understand understand the scale of the cost impact having separate attendance areas so to the what I was trying to say earlier what economies of scale still exist even though you're operating multiple attendance areas so having shared administration central office um, services and should your adjustment be reflective of that so I'm going to try to go back to where I can see faces there you all are. Any questions? This is Dave Jensen from the Hi, Amanda. How are you? Um, my question is, as you did this work, and I really appreciate the time you put into it, did it consider uh, the staffing, or was there a staffing analysis as part of looking at these attendance areas? I'm less concerned about the, the attendance areas per se. I'm more concerned about being able to staff them at the appropriate level. And I don't have the answer. That's why I'm asking what factors were um, included in your calculations. And then Brown for the record. Good question, Dave. We didn't have any of that staffing information by um, at a level of detail where we could talk about um, the differences between districts based on their attendance areas. So when I talk about additional data collection from districts, I think that's something you'd want to understand is how do districts go about staffing different attendance areas? Is it that it's just the school smaller, so that needs to be the consideration? Are you losing more staff time to, you know, your windshield time of getting people out to different places? We just didn't have the level of depth of detail of data to dig into those things as much as we would like to. So. I definitely think it's something to address for optimal discussion is to try to gather some of that information that we did have to look at for you all. Okay. AJ, did you have a question? Yes, thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I, I don't, uh, I guess I'm not, not that worried about the attendance area piece, but just looking at the, the district size adjustment and the necessarily small schools adjustment, I, I would say I agree with them. I mean, in concept, I don't think there's any problem, but is, is there any rationale as to why um, with the district size adjustment, you implement the J curve, but with the necessarily small schools adjustment, it's kind of broken out in these tiers of students. <clears throat> Maybe this came up in the, the other group's discussions. I don't know. It just, it, it seems to me that it would, you would kind of get the same impact if, if on the necessarily small schools you had the J curve and then if you had two consistent items for determining that maybe it's easier to understand not that the tiers are difficult to understand but just just thoughts uh, it, it was in part because the necessarily small schools adjustment was first based on looking at what other states were doing and essentially picking the, the approach that we thought was most advantageous and most 
representative of the cost that small district experience, um, which at the time was the one based solely on 50 students in the school. Um, and using that divide by seven and add the one. So we modified it to be more Nevada specific by adding the floor and then tearing it up. But you're right, we could have um, created a formula on top of that uh, to smooth the edges. So that's something that we could, could think about doing. Thank you. Any other questions from folks or do I hear a motion percolating? Madam Chair, Paul, I have a comment. Okay. Um, thank you. Um, and I guess the question, so in the old model, we had the um, groupings and attendance areas, and their purpose was to, I guess, mock a density or sparsity scale that would take into consideration differences in cost because of the density and sparsity. We really don't have a density factor per se, currently so which of these do you think i guess amanda or justin more accurately captures those cost differentials from a density perspective sorry i figured out the microphone uh justin silverstein for the record well, I think what Amanda's saying is that there's probably a mix between the two pieces. Um, <clears throat> in part, it's the combination of all the different pieces that we're putting in. So if you rely on the goods uh, factor in the RPP, that's part of what we're trying to deal with for some of the sparsity and the cost of sparsity. Um, and so we don't want to over-adjust or under-adjust, and, and we might not be perfectly there. Um, <clears throat> I think what we were seeing with uh, the um, locate the, the the kind of what the new piece that we've modeled is that it, it seems like it might be overstating sparsity. We might be a little bit understating the sparsity other. So it's, it's not a great answer, but I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. We would lend ourselves knowing um, that we have the RPP and the goods um, in the RCA adjustment uh, to go with the original proposal and, and not use um, you know, do a little bit more digging before we use this other piece. Okay, thank you. Did that help, Paul? Yeah, I did, thanks, I appreciate that. Okay. Good. Uh, any other questions regarding the uh, school and district adjustments size? Okay, um, do I have a motion to consider? This is Jason. Okay, hello Jason. Uh, I will make a motion to move uh, forward with the recommendation um, to apply the original recommended size adjustments as provided by APA. Okay, do I have a second? Second. Okay, second by Guy. Again, Jessica, you want to go one by one for this? Yes, thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Madam Chair, before we go on, I just need a clarifying question. Does this, um, does the recommendation that we're talking about, the original, does that include what we discussed, the adjustments to the um, necessarily small schools? 
that rather than from up to 50, it's now up to 149. Is that included in that, or is this proposal excluding that uh, modification for earlier work? Good question. Let's go back to Jason, but um, could you show that slide, Amanda? I guess my assumption is that's including that. So, Jason, for clarification. <laughs> that's a good point. My intention was to include that, so, but I don't know that that wasn't necessarily their original one. So let me amend my motion slightly to um, the original. Uh, my motion is to approve the EPA original recommended uh, adjustments for district size and also to utilize the updated necessarily small schools adjustment which moves the adjustments up to 149 students. Dave, does that help? Yes, thank you very much. Okay. And then, AJ, did you have a comment? Okay. Do I hear a second? And I have a second from Guy, I believe. Okay, thank you. Any further discussion or questions or clarification? Hearing no questions, Jessica? Sure. Member Casey? Yes. Member Fueling? Yes. Member Gowdy? Yes. Vice Chair Hobbs? Yes. Member Jensen? Yes. Member Johnson? Yes. Member Mathers? Yes. Chair McCormick-Lee? Yes. Member McIntosh? Yes. Member Morris Sibler? Yes. Thank you. Unanimous vote that the motion carries. Thank you very much. Are we on agenda item six, I believe, then? Recommendations regarding maximum amount of money uh, that each school district may deduct for its administrative expenses from the adjusted base per pupil funding. And that is over to Justin. Yep, you'll still be with me for that one. Okay. All right, so let me that one. Okay, ready when you are. Take your time. Okay, does everyone see the presentation titled Administrative Expenses? Yes. I mean, I'm sorry for interrupting. Madam Chair, would you like to take a five-minute convenience break? I'm actually okay, but we can. Sure. Let's go ahead and, uh, Amanda, that'll give you a minute. Everybody, take five minutes. We'll be back here quickly in five minutes to uh, reconvene. We're just on a little recess. And the good news is I don't have to tell you not to talk to each other. <laughs> Okay, so that was interesting. And actually, you know, I think while they're doing that, I should be able to go and get that, um, get the, let me see. Did I save it? I didn't. It's gotta be, I've gotta share. Then you have to do something else. 
Downloads. Because I did. This exercise presentation, it was a PowerPoint. See that? Hmm, I gotta show the screen. Get back to me. For a moment, you see that? Size and attendance. And I'm going to go through each slide really quick so that you can see it. So, am I recording? Yeah, I am recording. So, look at that. And all this information is actually at the Nevada uh, Department of Education on their website. You can go in and, uh, but what, what won't be there is this video that we're recording. So I'm going to pause the recording until they come back. But I'm sure I didn't pause the recording, so. Question. Paul, are you out there? Okay, I think we're waiting on Paul, Dusty, and maybe Jim. Jim, are you there? Yep, okay, Jim is there. Dusty's coming back. Let me check. Paul? I'm here now. Okay, great. Amanda, ready when you are. Great. Can everyone see the presentation? The administrative one? We can hear it. I hear you and see it. Great. Um, so let's see. For this one, we want to talk through how we're defining administrative expenses. We presented this last time to the working group and had some good conversation around, did administrative expenses mean just your administrator salaries? Did it mean um, more broadly your civil office functions, um, which could include M&O, things like that? 
Um, so we've gotten a little more guidance in this area that I'll share. Um, a little more review of Nevada's current expenditure information, um, where we landed, kind of the summary of findings, and then our recommendations. So for this one, um, different than the last presentation, we really focused on um, defining administrative expenses as based on your administrative salaries and uh, benefits. So what we found, it, as we mentioned in the last presentation, that it's not specifically defined in the bill. Um, there's also no record of legislative intent available, which had been a question from the group. We did get some feedback um, from folks that participated in those conversations that they really felt the intent was to limit administrative salaries. Um, so we conferred with NDE and, uh, as mentioned, determined that for this work, we'll really focus on administrative salaries and benefits. And we'll also be focusing on base funding and not weighted student funding. So in our last conversation, we had a lot of um, discussion about how in your special needs groups, there might be centrally managed functions, especially for your special education. But for our purposes, for the objective of this commission, um, committee is to really focus on the, that administrative expense within the base. So we looked again at uh, current expenditure information in Nevada as defined by um, what's currently in the accounting, looking at you know your salaries, so your object code 100, looking specifically at the functions for administrative salaries, and then looking at the, the subtotals for administrative personnel for each of your benefits. Um, categories and then again just looking at funds that were coming out the the general fund so as best we can to isolate where um, your base resources were so from this review of 1819 district expenditure information we calculated a percentage of the total expenditures um, excluding debt service and capital for administrator salaries and benefits again using those accounting codes um, with the intent of excluding those things to get to your ongoing base operational expenses. Um, we found that there was significant variation between districts and uh, the percentage of their total expenditures that were for administrative salaries. It's not perfectly correlated with size, but there is some relationship. And we found that those salaries and benefits range from about 5% to almost 14% with an average of 8.5% of that total. Um, so this is just all of the districts. I think it's most helpful actually to look at the next slide um, where you start looking at how does that uh, look when you look at districts less than 10,000. Because prior to that, um, you see the average is right around six to 7% for your, for your largest districts. So most of your variation is in your smallest, your smaller districts. Um, and you can see it, it bounces around a fair amount um, with, above 1,000 students, uh, no more than kind of 10%, then that percentage increasing um, in your smaller places to up to almost 14% that we talked about. So real summaries of findings here are, um, again, focusing administrative expenses on salaries and benefits of your administrators versus trying to do a broader catch-all of your district level centrally managed expenses. Um, in recapping where we were in the last presentation, there are very few states that set any limits on administration. Um, the NCS data, if you try to compare Nevada districts to districts around the country, the NCS data is very inconsistent, um, largely likely in how folks code and think about things. And looking at current Nevada expenditures, suggests that there's a range based on size. Well, it's not perfectly correlated, but you do want to take into account that 
your economies of scale mean that your smaller districts are going to spend more per, um, as a percentage basis on administration than larger districts. So our recommendations would be to set tiered administrative expense limit targets um, over 50,000 students at 8% for 1,000 to 50,000, 10%, and less than 1,000, 15%. Um, you'd also want to ensure that there's consistent coding and how uh, folks are accounting for their administrators. You want to monitor those expenses over time and then allow for waivers if there's documented need for a district. And if we go back to that earlier chart, um, you can see these limits. There is no district that is currently over the limit that we're suggesting. And we built in a little bit of kind of a 1% buffer um, on those figures. Any questions? Um, I don't see anybody else with a question, so I'm going to ask. Actually, oddly enough, this is actually for Jason, maybe. I'm not sure if this is for Jason or Amanda. Jason, does this interfere with any other uh, requirements for Clark and any legislation that might uh, impact spending in central office and administration, or does it contradict anything, or no? Well, it, it, this, this is Jason for the record. So there, there's just potential challenges as we, we as we think about NRS 388G, which is the reorganization bill. That has a mandate that we have to fund schools at 85% of our unrestricted uh, funds, and so there's it's 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 complicated. So I get into that, but but this certainly would have to be taken into consideration. We've known about this challenge, and so we have uh, discussed this with the NDE. And we've started kind of discussing how some of these pieces might layer in. Um, and, and I guess, you know, for, for me to truly answer the question, I'd, I'd have to get some clarification because I don't know, I, I guess I'm not clear as to what administrative people are um, in this definition. So I think that would help if Amanda could, could kind of address that. But the simple answer is this certainly has um, provide some challenges to Clark that is that are not uh, at other school districts because of the um, reorganization bill that's in law. But, um, and maybe this isn't for Amanda, and it, I don't know, uh, James or Heidi, if you're out there, could those be accommodated through NDE guidance or any kind of regula regulation, maybe explaining or defining administrative costs, or would this, be just a flat-out contradiction. So I'm not quite sure if that question's for Amanda, for Heidi, or for James. I can take a stab a bit at it and then turn it over to Indy if they want to talk about the guidance-related piece. My and and again, I am not going to claim to be an expert on this this law, so I I could be misspeaking. Uh, mis but my understanding is the 15% for Clark is a much broader definition of what it is to be central office. Um, which instead we are looking at just um, administrators as they are defined currently um, in the accounting system. So how you have them coded as administrators. Now, if I'm not mistaken, um, going back to the slide for um, Clark, the threshold we set was um, higher than what's currently in um, that coding information when we are looking there. Um, Clark's was, you know, just over 6%. 
um, which I noticed when I when I looked at the district's kind of budget reporting documents, that number was a little higher than what I think I saw, like three and a half percent that was reported for administrative. So there's a little difference in definition there, but I do not think that this uh, the intent of this is to supersede what's already being required of Clark. I think it's um, Clark can still operate within those constraints under this administrative expense because it's it's higher than what's currently both happening in practice in both the accounting and how um, the market accounts for it. Okay, I think that actually answers my question. If um, looks like Jim McIntosh looks like you have a question. Just have a quick question and maybe a comment. It, it looks like you said this is function 2300 and 2400 is what you're using, and that would be what would that's what you use as your application to get to your percentage. And so, whatever administrators you're charging to those functions, which are essentially uh, it's got school administration, right? And that's um, and then board or executive administration. I, I just want to make sure that's how we're defining this. Oops, sorry. Sorry, was that question back to me? I apologize. Yes. Um, I, it was when I look at, I can even probably pull up the. I just want to make sure it's a functions 2300, 2400. So I just, just maybe more of a comment for clarification as we vote on this. That That is specifically the board, the superintendent's office, legal, um, and then 2400 right. is school administration. So depending on how you code those items, uh, you could have some changes, but I think that that's essentially what you've done, right? That's how we yeah. define, that's how we're defining administrative expenses, whatever's in function 2300 and 2400. Exactly. Okay. Madam Chair, this is Paul, the question when it's appropriate. Paul, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Um, yeah, you know, I want to make sure when we're doing all of this funding that we're not, we're not leaving some gap out in uh, our expenditures. And when I, I'm trying to align the base funding and weighted funding and administrative funding with the categories and function codes in the chart of accounts that we have in our uh, Nevada Financial Accounting Handbook. And it seems to me that uh, instruction and support services for students and um, teachers are covered through the base. It seems pretty clear that general administration 2300 and function 2400 for school administration are part of the admin. But we also have categories for uh, central services, which is 2500, 2600, which is operations and maintenance of plant, and 2900, which are other support services. And I'm not sure whether base is supposed to cover that or whether that's part of the administrative cost. Uh, and I'm not happy with coming up with a, a, a figure that says this amount of money. Um, I, I think we could probably do a, a somewhat of a professional judgments approach over time, not immediately, that would more clearly define um, what positions should be there and kind of replicate what was done at the school and instruction level with the administrative support level. So I'm trying, trying to get some clarity on those other categories in our chart of accounts, such as central services, operations, maintenance, plant, and other support services, where do those fall? Are they part of administrative costs, or are they part of base? Um, I'm in, and I can answer that for you, Paul, um, because we had conversation at the last meeting about what to include in administrative expenses. We have now stepped down to just the personnel that are allocated in the currently in that uh, 
2300 and 2400 um, accounting code, we are not including maintenance and operations or other centrally managed services. So we are not setting a percentage or a threshold. My understanding is then it is um, up to the district to determine how much of the other resources they need to keep centrally for those services, but that we were not specifically setting a rule or a, a requirement around what those amounts were, that we just needed to step back and just look at um, administrator salaries. Okay. We had tried to well, think too broad of a lens at the last meeting, so we've really dialed back. Okay, well, and if, and if that's the case, then the amount that's intended for the, the pupils, because the money's gonna follow the pupils, that amount of money that is centrally located for my maintenance personnel who aren't specifically designated to a school would come from the base. It would not be paid out of our administrative expense. And if there are tech specialists that we have or technology department that comes out of function code 2500, that would come out of the base for the school, not from the administrative costs. Is that correct? And then, Brent, that's my understanding. Well, I don't think when I'm reflecting back on the tables that I saw on the original 2006 study, and we had the tables that identified the recommended staffing levels, I, I don't remember seeing pieces for that administrative portion. It was more directly tied toward those expenses at the school level for instruction, even had administrators in there as well, uh, and instructional support. And I don't remember there anything or these other categories. So I'm kind of concerned that we might be diluting the amount of base funding that's supposed to be going to students and instruction and services for students and uh, staff by having to fund these other areas that I think are more administrative costs, not base costs. Uh, Paul, I, I definitely hear your concern, but um and I, I'd welcome Indy to, to jump in from their perspective. Um, that was an, initially our intent at the last meeting was to try to determine what was that, the amount that a district needed to hold back with the assumption that the rest was flowing to schools. Um, in our understanding from conversations is that was not the intent of the legislation, that the goal was really to make sure that you weren't spending over a certain threshold on just administrators. So now the only thing that we're trying to set here is how much can you spend on your administrators? And then it is up to the district to determine how much of the other dollars that are in support of schools they need to hold back centrally to manage things like your maintenance staff or, or different components. And that it is not the intent of the commission to set that determination for each district. Well, and thanks, Amanda. And, and sorry to monopolize this, uh, Madam Chair, but I guess I'm trying to find out if, if we're correlating adequate funding to each one of the aspects of a dis district spending and the student services are funded through the base the administrative services for schools are funded through the general through this administrative piece how are the other pieces for central services uh, other support services and operations and maintenance being funded or are they simply left out of this Madam Chair, if you, if you don't mind, this is Justin Silverstein for the record. Um, well, I, I think maybe we're thinking about this a little differently. To me, this is a accountability lens back towards your spending 
um, really from the base on how much of that money can be can be associated with this type of expenditure and not trying to figure out where the dollars overall come from. So I, I mean, I think in the end, your the base amount is paying for just you know most of your operations, but it's this is just saying you can only have this percentage allocated towards these categories of personnel um, at a maximum. So if if you know the state comes back and looks in, and, and so maybe I'm just reading that wrong, but I think it's more of a check and balance and not a, a allocation system. Mark, I see you shaking your head. Do you want to kind of add to that? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with APA. I think this is kind of a separate issue from base versus weighted funding. Um, so I just, I totally agree. This is just kind of a, a separate check or accountability that the, the law threw in, you know, that, that right. go to pay for administrators, central services, IT, as well as other costs. Paul, does that help? And, and again, I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that eventually, it, I'm thinking what your concern is, and I guess maybe this is a question, but I'm thinking part of what your concern is similar to Jason's concern about allocations of special education and things like that, where they support it from a central aspect, and how is that going to have to be reported or allocated? in terms of being uh, linked to student and reporting. Is that, am, am I understanding that's the concern you have about how it can get tied to base and base is linked to students? Or is your concern that you really think administrative funds um, are not inclusive enough and so everything under central technology and operations and other areas um, should be included in those administrative services. I think what I'm hearing Justin say, and, and maybe this is a question, that what you're trying to do is limit the definition of administrative expenses to some specific administrative salaries to increase the amount of flexibility that a district has to address some of those other areas. So am I misunderstanding? Well, and maybe maybe it's um, my misunderstanding. So I was under the impression that um, the funding that we would receive would be our adjusted base plus nutrition, transportation, plus administrative. So am I hearing that we are going to get the adjusted base plus the nutrition slash program, and of the adjusted base, we're only allowed to spend 15% or whatever percent of that adjusted base on administration? Amanda Brown, is my understanding is it's a percentage of the base that you can spend for administrative salaries. And then again, the, the remaining amount is at the discretion of a district to choose how they allocate it to schools or what they hold centrally. And it's also not to say that a district has to spend that percentage on administrative salaries. It's just, to Justin's point, that check and balance to make sure you're not spending a, a, and, and a, James, a in those areas. And James, could you just do a quick confirmation on that is the intent? James Kilpatrick? 
James Kirkpatrick for the record. Uh, yes, so it is um, our belief the bill uh, designates uh, that the administrative costs would be deducted from the adjusted base or the base um, funding. Okay, so Paul, I, I believe you listed that as the second scenario. Yeah, and that, that makes things more clear to me. Thanks, Carlene, and thanks, James. I appreciate the clarification. Uh, and then my only concern that I would have would be the fact that there's more, I guess, common administrative costs other than just general administration and school administration. But if that's the definition and the intent was to just make sure we didn't spend more than that for those items, I'm fine with it. Okay. Any other questions? Do I perchance hear a motion from anywhere? Um, Amanda, while people are thinking about the motion, could you restate the recommendation? Sure thing. Um, let me just move to that slide. So our recommendation is to have tiered administrative expense target based on size of district. So a district that has over 50,000 students, that threshold will be set at 8%. So not to spend more on administrator uh, salaries and benefits and 8% of the base. Between 1,000 to 50,000 50, students, that'd be 10%. And less than 1,000 students, that would be 15%. And again, allow for waivers if there's documented need. Okay. Madam Chair. This is Paul. Yeah. I hate to be a I hate to be a pest, but um, I just have one concern, um, and it's more with respect to maybe it, maybe it doesn't apply here. But I just wonder what, whether or not there should be a minimum threshold that you that because typically support areas in general administration. They're the first to go and the last to come back. And as funding develops, and as we go through this process, there's gonna be, I think, more burden on reporting and accountability. So there might be a, a need to add services there. And, and I can speak from our personal experience of going through ebbs and flows of budget changes. Uh, we have restricted our support services to a level that makes it very difficult to um, keep pace with the increases of reporting and accountability that come along with each legislative session. And there's, there is never an increase to the support areas as a result and typically just criticism of not getting the work done. Uh, so I don't know if that needs to be in here at any point or somehow that's going to be addressed through this funding model. Madam Chair. Yes. For the record, this is Heidi Hartz. I just want to clarify that Senate Bill 543 um, indicates the department shall adopt regulations prescribing the maximum amount of money each school district may deduct for administrative expenses. If the commission wishes to establish um, a minimum amount um, as well, I would recommend that that be part of the recommendations the commission puts forward to the governor in the legislature with the July um, submission of information. Perfect. Thank you, Heidi. And just FYI, it comes up as James when you talk. That's interesting. 
That's because the four of us are all in the same room. Okay. Distancing, the very good. Okay. Big room. <laughs> uh, Paul, does that take care of it? Because I think that's an interesting concept given the, the um, given the times, conditions, and uh, you make a good point. That is sometimes the place where uh, money is taken away and not get put back. Yeah, that, that's fine, Madam Chair, and I appreciate that. And I guess, you know, I may have that only one that has that concern, and I would just defer to my other CFO colleagues um, to for, for input on that. I know that I've heard each one of them mention how their offices are strained in order to accomplish the work that they have and they're in need, in need of additional resources. And I know it's difficult to for school districts when they have other needs in other areas to devote uh, labor and resources to central support. Okay. So um, in June uh, and July, we'll start them in June and we'll finalize in July. And I am starting and I know that Heidi uh, and Heidi Hartz and the folks at Nevada Department of Ed have started a list of potential recommendations that we would be giving to the governor and to the future. Um, so I will make sure that this one gets onto the list. So addressing what Heidi had brought up in terms of the, require, the current requirements, which is to identify a maximum. Um, do we have any other questions or conversation on the maximum amounts for administrative expenses? Yes, I do. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. I okay. put myself on mute so you could talk and I got Perfect. to mention it. <laughs> this, this is Jason. Uh, I, I guess my point here is that, you know, we're obviously very big and, and I don't know what this calculation for us is off the top of my head. So I'm going to have a hard time agreeing to an 8% without me being able to go back and look at this. Because if we're sitting at 7.8, there's no way I can agree to 8. Um, and I think that you know, I, I think that this is something that the districts need to go back on a little bit more and have a little bit more time because um, I, I am still, again, we're bigger and, and, you know, Jim knows the, you know, the details of 2300 and 2400 probably better than I do because he was here for a long time. And um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that. And then, you know, while I agree with Paul's concept that the support group and other groups get cut and don't get added back. I am always against putting something in the law that mandates um, districts to do something. So I think that, you know, there's, there's consensus there, but putting a minimum in there would, I think, um, tie some hands that I wouldn't want to agree to. Um, I agree with the concept, but I think that should, should remain at the operational level. That's the only comments I had. Amanda, go ahead. Yeah, um, Amanda Brown for the record. I think it is a good point that it'd be good for the, the superintendents to check where they are currently. I know Clark, um, based on the 1819 data, was at 6.4%. Um, so we did try to make sure there was a, a full percentage point buffer in all of these. Um, but I don't think it's a bad idea to try to look at the most recent data that CFOs have available to see if it it's changed over time. Because our intent was not to to harm the districts into making different choices. Okay. Any other comments or questions? Um, I'm going to go. Guy, do you have a question? 
No, no. Okay. Um, uh, let me jump to high. I guess this. Um, this might be a question. I'm not sure whether the question is for uh, Ms. Hartz or um, uh, Mr. Aguero. Uh, so this is a question because we have these items on the agenda because they are required to stand up the formula and to get a, a report back from the districts. So I guess my brain is wondering if we were to approve the recommendation today and then we get the comparison, this is kind of getting at Jason's question, uh, Member Gowdy's question, if in May uh, we get the information and in June we examine the district level comparisons, would we have an opportunity then to say, uh, wait a minute, 8% is a little tight. The realities when folks went back is that it's not 7%, it actually already is at eight, given most recent numbers. Um, so I guess I'm not sure if that's a question for that, that somehow is a question for Ms. Hartz and Jeremy in terms of being able to give the information to the districts and get information back in the time frame we need it. And then it's a question for uh, Ms. Hartz about we have if as long as we include it in the motion, we would have the opportunity to adjust based on the reporting that we got from the districts. So hopefully that made sense. For the record, Heidi Hartz, the, this decision regarding the administrative cap does not have um, any relevance into the actual standing up of the pupil-centered funding plan model. So the commission may choose to um, ad adopt a recommendation today or they may choose to defer it until they have time to review school district budget level information to determine if the proposed caps are reasonable. Um, what would happen with the recommendation that comes out of the commission is that the Department of Education would work to begin adopting regulations to support the established um, cap as required by Senate Bill 543. Okay, um, and one more one more question from my aspect. Uh, would would identifying these ahead of time so that districts as they're submitting their uh, information that we're gonna use for comparison in June, would it be helpful if we identify those caps so they can be identified at the time or that can just be a part of the overall look because you know the um, 2300, 2400, et cetera. You just isolate those and identify the percentage. For the record, Heidi Hartz, um, while that is a fantastic recommendation and suggestion, I don't believe that it will work within the process that we have established for school districts to compare or to develop their budgets under the pupil-centered funding plan um, for comparative purposes because we've used a hybrid approach that um, has them posting their real expenditures against what their revenues would be if the pupil-centered funding plan were in place um, as it is reflected in the blueprint. 
So we have different parts and pieces that don't align very clearly. Um, we would, however, um, at the department, be happy to go back to the chief financial officers for each school district and ask them if they would um, do a second look at their budgets for the um, current fiscal year and identify within these um, established parameters, are they reasonable and appropriate for where they are from a fiscal perspective? And we could have that for you at the May meeting. Okay, and uh, do you need a motion for that, or are we, uh, as long as there's a consensus, and I'll check with everybody in just a second, as long as there's a consensus, I think that is what Member Gowdy is asking for, the time to be able to go back and take another look at that information uh, in his current budget. Ms. Hartz, do you need a do you need an actual motion, or are you good with just consensus of the group? Um, I would probably defer to legal counsel, but I, me personally, I, I'm fine if you just ask that we we do that um, research um, and report back to you at the next meeting. Okay. Um, Okay, so let me just kind of take a, anybody want to make a motion and that way it's clean or we can do a general consensus. Paul, since you had a lot of the questions about it, uh, or Member Gowdy, do you want to uh, make a motion to uh, ask NDE to go back and take a look at this and work with the CFOs or something similar? Madam Chair, this is Paul, and uh, I'd I prefer to take a look at it and see how it stacks up with budgets first before moving forward. I think in our case, we're going to be well within the parameters. Um, I'm more concerned with Clark than I am on the, on the lower end than anything else. Okay. Yeah, this is Jason. I don't know that a formal, I think just asking them to do that, um, and, and I, I appreciate Paul's concern about us. Um, you know, I'm equally concerned about some of the small ones just because um, when you have a smaller pool, obviously these change a lot, and, and I know that Amanda and them have done some research on it, but I just want to, I, I want the teams, I think it's appropriate to have the CFOs have the time to go back. Um, one question I have, though, is that um, in order for us to do this, we have to know what the base funding amount is, and, and I don't know that I've seen the base funding yet. I know that we're working on that with the NDE and, and the, the new budget piece, um, and, and I've been kind of tied up in COVID, so I've been letting the team do that. So uh, I just want to make sure that we have that information available as well. Okay. Um. Heidi, I think you have some marching orders, so unless anybody else has any comments or questions to, uh, to further the discussion, um, I think I'll say thank you very much to Amanda and Justin for a lot of good work and taking a look at it. And um, look forward to reporting in May regarding the uh, May and June regarding uh, some actual numbers uh, as Nevada Department of Ed works with CFOs across the state to identify these uh, percentages and the, confirm the accuracy with current numbers. Hearing no other questions, I think that's uh, moving on. We are moving on now to public comment number two. 
Thanks, Madam Chair. We've received one item for public comment two, and I will read it into the record. It is from Chris Daly, representing the Nevada State Education Association, the voice of Nevada educators for over 100 years. Watching the Funding Commission from home as teachers have transitioned to distance learning and food service workers continue their frontline work of feeding district families is quite surreal. Educators across our state are working hard to adapt to their new and unique situation given the COVID-19 pandemic. We are disappointed to see the Commission did not adapt similarly for a topic that directly impacts them. While Governor Sisolak made the right call to protect Nevadans' safety, the financial impacts of this required response to the global COVID-19 pandemic are and will continue to be severe and undeniable. Last week, the governor asked all state departments for recommended cuts of 4% in the current fiscal year and 6 to 14% in fiscal year 21. Not even accounting for loss of local revenue, these general fund cuts alone could mean a loss of hundreds of millions of dollars for Nevada schools. Nobody yet knows what a return to school could look like, but Nevadans understand that sending students back to overcrowded classrooms doesn't work with our new practice of social distancing. The impact of the current crisis on Nevada schools eclipses anything else that has happened in recent memory. Yet today, the commission is wrangling with details like administrative caps, small school adjustments, and regional cost differences that more likely than not have been turned on their heads in just the last four weeks. But for the video format, but for the video format, Anyone watching today's meeting would have no idea Nevada is facing economic uncertainty and its upheaval. The details being discussed by the commission today may have been of great importance a couple months ago. However, everything now has changed. That is not hyperbole. Now is the time to address the big picture and take leadership on this crucial issue. Moving forward with old timelines and deliverables as if nothing has changed is irresponsible and only serves to harm Nevada educators and students. It's time for the funding commission to study, to study current economic impacts on our schools, report these findings, and recommend a delay in the implementation of 543. Thank you. Thank you. Um, any, other, uh, any other public comment, Jessica? Not to my knowledge. Hey, are there any other comments from members before we adjourn? Well, I do want to repeat, it is good to see everyone, even if it is virtually and healthy and here. So that is good news. Um, our next meeting will be all of tomorrow morning, Friday, uh, April 17th at 9 a.m. We have another portion of our agenda to move through. And uh, again, I'm looking forward to uh, the May, June, and July and a set of recommendations that will move forward as well. Uh, always a pleasure, but that concludes our meeting for the day. Have a good evening. Be well, be safe. Thank you. Thanks, Charlene. Bye. Everyone, take care. Well, that was just interesting and amazing that I could document it. So I'm going to end the meeting for now, and then I'll pick it back up tomorrow morning, that is. And I might probably do some more live stream, but first I have to save this, let it upload so that I can put it on the net. So until tomorrow, I'm ending the meeting.